Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Today, we are honored to have two very special guests, Jennifer Thompson and Katie Monroe. They will be speaking about their organization, which is called Healing Justice. But before we delve into how that organization was founded and its mission, I wanted to give my listeners a brief backstory as to how I learned about Jennifer way back in 2009. I was a volunteer teacher at a men's maximum security prison very close to my home here in New York. My goal was to help the men pass the essay portion of the GED. So I decided to read to them out loud from a variety of memoirs so the men could understand the concept of using stories from their own lives as material for their essays. And one of the many books I read to them was Picking Cotton, which Jennifer co-authored. And she will say a little more about that book in a few minutes. Then in 2015, I met Jennifer at a huge convention of people involved with innocence projects all over the world and people impacted by wrongful convictions. Welcome to you both, Jennifer and to Katie. Thank you. Thank you, Harriet. Good to have you with us. All right. I just wanted to read um, a little bit about your um, your background on each of you very short just to introduce our listeners to you and then we will begin. Jennifer Thompson is the founder of Healing Justice and a crime survivor whose case resulted in a wrongful conviction and exoneration. Katie Monroe is the executive director of Healing Justice and is the family member of someone who was wrongfully convicted. All right, so Jennifer, I thought we would begin with you and your your unique story. So would you share what that story is with our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, in 1984, when I was a college student in a small uh, town called Burlington, North Carolina, I was uh, studying going into my senior year of college I was maintaining a 4.0 GPA, I was working two jobs, I was dating and about to become engaged, and on July 28th of 1984, I'd gone out with my boyfriend for the day, we played tennis, we were going out to eat dinner, and sometime around 8 o'clock that night, I came down with a really terrible headache and asked my boyfriend to take me home, which he was polite enough to do that gave me some aspirin, he gave me some water, and I fell asleep sometime around 9 or 9.30 p.m., um, and that's my last memory of that night. Around 3 a.m. in the morning, I felt an uncomfortable and uneasy uh, presence in the room with me. I lived alone, so, of course, hearing a noise inside my apartment was quite disconcerting, And as I struggled to kind of open my eyes, I felt something brush against my left arm. And I opened my eyes and looked to the left side of my bed and saw the top of someone's head uh, crouched um, to the left side. I immediately uh, asked who was there, and a man jumped up on my body and put a knife to my 
throat and told me to shut up or he would kill me. And in those you know, brief seconds, as you're trying to figure out what's happening, it became very clear that I was um, under a great deal of a threat, that that I was uh, not going to get out of this unscathed. And when I told the person, you know, please don't hurt me, you can take my car and my credit cards and my money, I won't call the police, he looked at me and said, I don't want your money. And then the reality of really what was going to happen to me became very clear. I knew that he was going to uh, rape me, but I didn't know if he was going to kill me. So I made the decision that night to try to stay very, very present to what was happening to me. Um, I needed to figure out what this person looked like. I wanted to know the sound of his voice. I wanted to know everything about him so that if I did survive, I would be able to help the police find him. After about 20 minutes of the assault, um, he tried to kiss my mouth, and I told him that I, um, that I was afraid of knives if he would just get off of me and take the knife to the front of my apartment and drop it on my car. I would let him come back in, and he believed me. So he walked to the front door, pretended to, not, to drop the knife out of the door, and then quickly came back in and grabbed my arm to pull me back into the bedroom. And I refused to go back in the room, telling him that I needed to go to the bathroom just to give me a moment. As I went into the bathroom, I turned the light on to give me another glimpse of what he looked like before he yelled at me to turn the light off. And I went into the bathroom and started to try to figure out what my next plan was, because that's as far as I had gotten. I had planned on shutting the door behind him and calling the police, but now that wasn't going to work. So I came back out of the bathroom, and I told him I needed some water first, um, because he had said to me he could come through my back door. So my plan now was to get to the back door and run. And as I got to the um, kitchen, I quickly turned the light on to give me some space and some distance and some time away from him uh, for a head start. And I began to make noise with the water running and cabinet doors shutting and drawers opening and closing. And I had pulled a night, uh, a blanket from the edge of my bed and put it around my body before I had gone into the bathroom. So I just pulled my blanket really tight and opened up the door and started to run. By this point, it was about 3.30 and it was raining and I didn't know where to go. I thought I would go next door to my neighbor's house and maybe he would let me in, but he was gone for the weekend. And as I looked over my right shoulder, I could see um, the rapist coming out of my apartment after me. And I knew that he was really angry. Mm. So I just took off running into the neighborhood and um, decided to run towards light that, you know, perhaps if I got underneath light, somebody might see him or call the police. So I landed in a carport where the light was on. And I didn't know who lived there, but I began to bang on the back door. And the neighbors who um, lived in the house came to the door and saw me. And it just happened to be one of the professors from the university who recognized me from being on campus. And they let me in. And they called 911. And the police came. The dogs tried to pick up the scent, but the rain had already washed that mm. away. And that's when I was taken to the hospital for a rape kit to be done um, to collect the evidence and it would be at the hospital that I would learn that he had left my apartment and 
walked on to rape another woman less than a mile from my apartment. Mm. And I could hear her crying down the hall. So I was very committed to help the police try to find this person and take him off the streets because he was dangerous. And I knew that he would rape again, that we had a serial rapist on our hands and the community wasn't safe until he was apprehended. So the police asked me to, you know, start describing this person. And I had gotten a very, very good look at him uh, for a, quite a long period of time in close proximity under varying degrees of light. I'd memorized his clothing. Mm. I, I knew the shape of his face. And it was so clear that the police asked if I could help do a composite sketch, which of course I, I wanted to help with. Um, so we did. And the composite sketch went to the newspapers. It ran in the newspaper and within hours of it hitting the newsstands, calls were coming into the police department about who this person looked like. But the most important phone call was from a woman who told the police to take a look at a guy named Ronald Cotton, that she knew him. He lived um, not too far from, from my apartment. He worked very close to the apartment complex in a seafood restaurant. And she said that she had seen him on a bicycle outside of my apartment at three o'clock in the morning on the night of my assault, wearing the exact clothing that I had described my assailant wearing. So mm. he was um, called in for questioning on August the 1st. I had been called to the police department to look at a photo array, which they, at that point, they called six packs. It was three on top of three. And of course, they gave me, you know, instructions to take my time to not feel compelled to choose anybody. But I saw him, and it was number three. And I picked up the photograph and initialed it. And the police officer said, "Good job. That's who we thought it had been." Mm. And at that point, it was such a relief to be able to help because the second victim had been beaten and bitten and punched, and a mm. flashlight in her face, a pillow over her eyes when she was assaulted, and she had not been able to give a very detailed description, although the clothes, of course, were exactly what I had described my assailant wearing. Mm. Um, so we knew that it was the same person, but she just right. she couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Right. Um, right. So, again, you know, the relief was just huge. I had been able to help the police. Uh, sure. A week after the photographic lineup, I was called back down to the police department to look at a physical lineup. At uh, this point in the year, the police department was being renovated. So I was taken to an abandoned schoolhouse on the second floor into an old classroom to look at this physical lineup. And I walked into the room, and the only thing that divided me and the seven men in the lineup was a folding table. Mm. So there was no windows or doors or curtains or anything to protect me. And of course, I was very, very scared. I felt like if I had gotten it wrong, that he would walk. And again, I was given the same instructions as I had received the photographic lineup. But, you know, again, you know, you're called back to the police department. You're, they're asking you to identify somebody. You know they've got a suspect. So I wrote down the number five on a piece of paper and handed it to the police officers. And again, they looked at me and said, that's who you picked out of the photograph. And mm. You know, again, you can breathe a little bit deeper. Um, you feel like, you know, you're safe. And now we were going to prepare for trial, which would take place in January of 1985. 
they made the decision to only try my case because the second survivor had not been able to make an ID. So we went to, um, to court, and it took two weeks of my life. Two and a half days, I had to testify over and over again about what had happened to me and what he had done to me, and graphic, awful details. And after the two weeks was up, the jury deliberated 45 minutes and found Ronald Cotton guilty of first-degree rape and first-degree sex offense and first-degree breaking and entering. And he would be given life in 54 years. And it was really the first time I felt like I could live again, yeah. knowing that justice had been served and that somehow the streets of Burlington were safer now. And even though we hadn't been able to try the, the case um, with the second survivor, I felt like I'd gotten justice for her as well. Sure. So, you know, <clears throat> then you're kind of tasked with this insurmountable. Um, job of trying to move forward and um, recover, which was really almost impossible. Um, 1984, not different than, really than today. People just don't talk to survivors and rape victims about trauma and recovery. Um, so you're left really to figure out these things on your own, and I didn't do a very good job of it. Um, mm. You know, I was really kind of living on a steady diet of drugs and alcohol and hate. And mm. it just about did me in by the spring of 1985. And I somehow kind of climbed out of a very, very dark space and was able to graduate school, um, move away from North Carolina, came back the following year. And in 1987, the um, appellate court overturned the decision and called for a retrial, saying that Ronald Cotton had been claiming innocence all this time and that the jury should have been told that there had been a second victim who had not made an ID. So therefore, we had to go back to, to trial, um, retry it all over again, but this time with both uh, myself and the second survivor. And fortunately, by 1987, she had come to the conclusion that Ronald had indeed committed the crime. She was just too afraid to say it. Mm. Um, but Ronald had come up with this theory that not only was he innocent, but that the person responsible for both of the rapes was in the same prison as he was, on the same cell block as he was, working in the same kitchen that he was. And it was a man by the name of Bobby Poole. So in the second trial under Vordier, they asked Mr. Poole, who they brought into the courtroom, if he had actually committed these crimes, if he had confessed to these crimes, and he denied it. And they asked both uh, myself and the second survivor if we recognized Bobby Poole, and both of us said, no, we did not. And was the man in the courtroom today that raped us? And we said, yes, it was Ronald Cotton, and that's really all that needed to, to happen, uh, except this time Ronald would be found guilty of both first-degree rapes and this time be given two life sentences. And 30 years. And, you know, every time these moments in your life come back, it's, it's just a re-shredding of whatever you have tried to put back together again. You know, every time you're just ripped apart and um, you're trying to find any pieces of your past or any pieces of your soul that you can recognize again and rebuild again. And it's really difficult. It's really hard to do that. Um, 
So I got married in 1988, and I got pregnant in 1989. In the spring of 1990, I gave birth to triplets. <laughs> and, you know, in, in many, many ways, they were um, my reason to survive. Because, you know, you had to get up in the morning. You have to feed the kids. You, <laughs> you have to be a mom. You don't, you can't just give up. And so they kept, they kept me alive, to be perfectly honest. And, and I loved it. I loved being a mom. It was um, the greatest joy of my life. And so I did it really well. <laughs> and um, a few years go, went by, and it was 1995, and the detective from my original um, case, Mike Galden and the ADA of Alamance County, called and said they needed to come and visit me. Um, and after, you know, you catch up on the pleasantries of life, they told me about this thing called post-conviction DNA testing and that Ronald was still claiming his innocence, but they knew that, you know, he was guilty. But if the courts allowed this testing to go through, my blood samples from the rape kit had disintegrated and mm. I would have to consent to another blood sample, which I just looked at them and said, let's go to the lab right now take my blood, run that test, because, you know, who doesn't want to know the truth? And I had believed my truth for 11 years, and they believed their truth for 11 years. So nobody really thought too much about it. And I went to my doctor, and they took some blood, and they gave it to the detective, and off it went. And I didn't spend too much time wondering about the results until June of 1995 when they came back to my house and looked at me and said that the DNA did not belong to Ronald Cotton. It belonged to Bobby Poole. And, you know, you, there's almost all of the survivors that I've talked to over the past use the same language, which is you just feel like you, the earth swallows you up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just, you just die again, like again. Everything is. Um, a big black space and you'd fall into it. Um, Ronald was exonerated on June 30th, 1995. Um, it was the first DNA exoneration in the state of North Carolina. It, it was a you know, pretty uh, new technique we were using, this DNA testing. But no one had used the DNA test also to, con- to conclude who it had been as well. So the news was really trying hard to find me, and um, and I was really doing a good job of making sure they did not find me because they did mm. not want anyone to know about me. I had children. I had to protect them. I went into, like, true hunker-down um, protective mode. Change your phone number, change the lock, tell the teachers mm. at their school you know, you can't answer the phone, you can't go to the front door, you can't go to the front yard, you can't go to the backyard. I mean, it's just, you go into hyper-protective mode. And, um, you know, I I lived like that for a very long time. I didn't want anybody to know anything about it. But about a year and a half later, a man from Boston uh, who was a frontline producer was doing a documentary about the fallibility of eyewitness ID. And he found me, tracked me down, and told me that he was going to be doing this this film about memory and would I tell my story and of course I said absolutely not why would I ever want anybody to know who I am 
And he looked at me and said, well, you know, Ronald's going to tell his story. And that was upsetting because I didn't want anyone to tell my story. It was my story. You can't tell my story unless you've been in my skin. So I agreed to tell my part of the story, but we could not be in the same city, the same state, ever. Um, Because I knew that he was angry, and I knew that he probably wanted to hurt me or my family. And they agreed that Ronald would tell his story, and they would do the filming, you know, with with Ronald in Burlington, and they would do my filming in Winston-Salem, which is where I lived. And um, that was fine. And so what Jennifer saw, which is the title of the film, aired in February of 1997. And the last thing I say in the film is I know that he's innocent, but I still see him in my nightmares. Mm. And the last thing Ronald says is, I know she's sorry, but I really need to hear that from her. And that was that impetus for me that I knew that I had to take that next step. And the next step for me meant I had to see Ronald Cotton because I didn't know Ronald Cotton as the man he he was. I only knew him as the person I had created. And if I didn't move that memory and put it in another place, then forever Ronald would take up that space in my brain, um, that being the face of, you know, my rapist. So uh, I asked the detective in the case if we could meet at a church in private, I didn't want anyone knowing, not even myself. I didn't know um, where I was going, and Ronald didn't know where he was going. So somebody had to go pick us up and bring us um, so that the media couldn't find us. Oh. And so I just waited in this church where we were going to meet. And before I could get my thoughts together, you know, he was there in the doorway. Mm. And I started to cry, and I just said to him, how sorry I was for what had happened and Ronald started to cry and he looked at me and said, you know, I, I don't hate you. We, we were both harmed. We were both hurt by the same person, which is Bobby Poole. And Bobby Poole intentionally hurt me. Bobby Poole intentionally hurt the other woman. Bobby Poole stayed free in the community for another nine months and committed 24 other violent crimes, six of which were first-degree rape. That was all intent. That was all malice. Yeah. You know, that's that's what he did. But he also knew that an innocent man was going to prison, and he didn't care. So we both had this place, this this place that we could start from um, Mm. in a relationship, which, which was we both were hurt. And our families were hurt, and the community was hurt, and none of us, none of us got justice. No. Um, and from that place, we were able to begin this kind of, you know, what I call a healing journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were able to take it together. What I didn't know was that we were actually doing restorative justice. Um, I had right. never heard of that term before, but it's exactly what we were doing. And, uh, we spent the next two hours in that study talking and asking each other questions and learning about the things that we had wanted to know for all these years. And at the end of the two hours, we hugged and promised that, you know, this was our um, journey. That we had traveled it together. We had survived it together. We would tell it together. 
Well, what I what I'd like to do is um, pick this up in uh, our next segment and talk about the issue which you have raised or just touched upon uh, of wrongful blame in cases which involve mistaken identity and and how to protect survivors. So um, we can certainly do that, and then like to. Um, involve Katie uh, Monroe in our discussion as well. So I hope our listeners will uh, come back and and follow this. It is a really a journey, Jennifer, um, as as you have uh, unfolded your your story. And the the journey is is fascinating. Um, it isn't just the book, um, which I loved, but your your founding of Healing Justice um, and. I was, as you spoke, I was thinking about the fact that you never sought out counseling after something like this. And really, that's what healing justice is all about, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. it is. So um, I think we will um, close today. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing this story, even though it happened so very, very long ago. It makes no difference that uh, it is still so clear in your mind and and not an easy story to tell, um, but important to tell uh, so that others who have been through a similar experience can possibly relate to what you are sharing today. So please uh, return to Pursuing Justice. Uh, We will see you next time um, on uh, Pursuing Justice. And uh, I also always ask people to write to me uh, with their thoughts and ideas at pursuing.justice5 at gmail.com. So we'll see you next time. 